Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe, the podcast series for beginner web developers and general web enthusiasts. Now, introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Keynes, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs in a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we are joined by the very, 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 very busy Michael Budd. How you doing, Mickey? I thought you were going to go with handsome. But, handsome? Uh, yeah. uh, okay, the, the very handsomely busy Michael Budd. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> uh, yeah, How you doing, no, dude? I'm good. I'm good. Like you say, I am uh, not very handsome. I don't think you're really busy. Very, very busy. I, yeah. I, I think you're just busy for me. You're like, oh, yeah, Ed, I'm sorry, I'm really busy. And it's like everyone else is like, guys, I've got nothing else to do. I'm bored. <laughs> just whenever you want to come around, oh, I'm sorry, man. Sorry, I'm man. Yeah, I'm out at Do, the moment. Doing my hair. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. I'm doing my yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lack but, off. Absolutely. You know? And it's like, oh, but, but your car's in the drive, Mickey, and you're not in. It's like, yeah, I man, no, no sorry. And the, and the kids screaming, you know, and everything. And exactly, you're doing your yeah. hair. Oh, yeah. dear. So, so what's been going on, man? What's going on in the life of Mickey at the moment? Um, so pretty much, uh, well, I'm full-time pretty much working on this uh, this project, this WebStats project, So, which I think I've, you know, well covered in the podcast. So I won't bang on about that. But uh, just really, um, I don't know about you, but like, we get close to the deadline, it gets more stressful. I think, well, the, the code base is obviously coming bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's a bigger project to manage and expectations now and everything like that. Yeah, exactly. But um, I don't know, I, I think I heard someone on the news the other day, it's like saying like how your your productivity goes down when you're stressed. And that's horrible, isn't it? Because that's just like a horrible The one time you need it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, but no, to be fair, I mean, I, I'm running close to deadlines now, and but uh, the client's been really understanding, and, and he's really happy with the product. And uh, one of the nice things I would say about this whole experience is, that, like, one thing I could uh, recommend to other people, like freelancers and stuff, if you're doing a large project, like the kind of like bi-monthly demos, they're just really, really good. Like, okay, you might lose like an hour out of your working week, but it just makes sure that you're you, you don't just deliver a product at the end of it, which is you know completely not what they expected or whatever. And you can put in those little changes as long as the client's not you know completely rewriting the spec. But um, it's just for me, I really like that. I like that kind of feedback uh, regularly rather than at the end you know Absolutely. so i mean it's interesting you say that because obviously that then shortens the i mean i would say maybe even more you could probably do couldn't you like i mean <clears> within <throat> reason because obviously you know you need if the client is very busy or there's many you know people to, uh, that combine to be the client then obviously you have yeah. to orchestrate and get them all together but like you say those yeah. short feedback cycles really help you because i think you know fundamentally i think there's two things actually and i think i know from personal experience where I kind of come from these two things is one you're really scared of actually asking the clients for their feedback because you're scared that they're going to say it's rubbish or it's wrong and you're gonna have to do it all again so you kind of either push it back and you're saying no I'm not going to ask them because I'm on the right track I know I've solved it in my way even though it may not be the right solution it's like oh but this is such a good solution to a problem that may not even be the right problem and things like that so you you kind of push it away and you kind of subconsciously think no I'm not going to ask them and stuff until the end because you don't want to be wrong Um, that's very true it's kind yeah. of like head in the sand approach that's I it guess. you know because you want to be right and you know you're, you're happily on your way um but yeah. there should be the other side of that flipping that over is really what you should be doing is you should say you should be constantly getting feedback because if you can't feedback 
at a good time you have enough time to swerve and you know to yeah. go and change directions and things like that and you know big changes aren't going to be around because you're just going to end up you know obviously the, you know it's going to be short iterations where you're like okay now i need to change this that's fine because it's only been say i mean it goes from being like maybe a day's work you know so you say okay now i only have to change a day's work as opposed to a month's work or something like that because you've you know obviously gone down the wrong path so i do think as you say you know good conversation and dialogue with the client is a must Definitely. And I think the other side of that is that, uh, you know, if you are then running late, you know, at least the client's knowing exactly what you're doing. He knows you're not just twiddling your thumbs. And he's like, well, do you know what? I did ask you to change those things. and I appreciate they take extra time. And, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not like an agile disciple or anything like that. I, you know, I'm still re- <laughs> waiting to read the book on the on agile, so speak. Um, and but it, there are certainly things like out of that that people have told me about that really make sense. And, uh, and that kind of constant kind of feedback that the just feedback really makes has sense to be me. sure i mean it, when it goes down yeah. on the code level with tdd and things like that where you're getting constant test feedback and things like that you know yeah. it, it needs to go up to the level of bubble up to you know your client base and what you do with the client you know and, and how you interact with them because yeah gone are the days of you just going off you know getting this spec and going off for a month and then coming back because people have realized how poor that is uh you know whether you go to the spec completely and it's right at that time the the spec changes throughout the time you know your client i mean i'm sure there's been decisions where the client had thought of doing that you've shown them maybe part of the solution a prototype of how that works and actually i don't really want that you know and that saves you so much valuable time as as opposed to you know maybe what you would have done is spent a month polishing this feature off just for them to go nah that wasn't really what we wanted and you have to do another month and you know, obviously, yeah. if, you want, if you're trying to con your, uh, you know, the money out of your client, that's great. But to actually get a good client relationship is to be, you know, working with them and saying, okay, well, we'll try this and see how it goes and things like that. So, no, I'm completely yeah. on board with what you're saying. That's it. So, uh, really, I've, I've been working on that, and then, uh, you know, apart from that, I've been working on my pizza oven. So, uh, completely which... diverse. And how's the feedback loop well, going in that? <laughs> well, the project manager is very happy with it. Well, actually, it's, it looks diabolical, but. It's no, I'm really, really happy with it. And uh, all joking aside, like I think having a side project away from code, whatever you want to do, whether it's like clay pigeon shooting or whatever, but just having something apart from that is is really healthy. I would and, love and, to do clay pigeon shooting. Okay, that that would be a cool thing. That would be a good hobby to have. <laughs> but yeah, the pizza oven has been my uh, my side really, and uh, yeah, I reckon about two weeks I'll be cooking that Very first pizza. Nice. So, I expect uh, pictures, yeah. video. Um, and I don't expect yeah. it to fall down. I know you've been talking off air to me like about how it's been going and stuff. Yeah. And there's like a big, what is it like the big decision, not big decision, but it's the big kind of part of it now is that you're going to essentially try and make sure it, what is it, stands up on its own or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, basically I just built the, the dome on top of the base that I've built. And uh, that's like a mix of clay and sand. Well, I think they call it fire cob. And basically, yeah, it will be a test. Like I have to scoop out all the sand from underneath that's supporting it. And A, hope that it it stands up and b that when the fire goes it doesn't destroy everything so um i'm you know fairly optimistic but uh but yeah it's just been so much fun just learning you know how to do it and uh, you know the different material types and something that's so foreign to me something i've not done before it's just really cool to do so that's awesome yeah and how have you been like kind of learning about that is that been like youtube videos and you know, you know articles I mean, online or I know we've said it like a thousand times, but it's just YouTube is just so so good. I mean, I must have watched like uh, maybe a hundred different YouTube videos on people, and it, it just varies from like complete cowboys to you know real real professionals. But you can usually learn something from from all of them. You know, like the cowboys, you learn 
you think oh i'm not tips gonna and do tricks. that so yeah yeah exactly you learn the knots to do or maybe like tips and tricks of how to get things cheaply done you know as opposed to maybe you know 100 percent. yeah yeah and awesome. there already are like parallels with you know i mean craftsmanship is craftsmanship right if it's where you know code or building a pizza oven but like if you skimp on materials then it's going to go wrong if you if you cut corners it's probably going to fall down um so yeah, uh, it's yeah really good fun, really good fun. If, I recommend it to anyone who's got like a spare patch in the garden, and you know what, what's better than like cooking your own pizza on your own pizza oven? I like a, that. Well, day, I think we've just so. found the uh, name of the podcast episode. Let's build a pizza oven together. Let's build a pizza, like, yeah, I like build it. a pizza oven. You know, I think it's yeah. good, not vague at all. You know, it's exactly what this podcast is about: building pizza <laughs> ovens. Uh, yeah, but yeah. But so, anyway. What have you been up to? Uh, so, well, I mean, I ha- unfortunately, I haven't been playing uh, pigeon shooting and I haven't been oh. building pizza ovens, so I haven't really been living. You sound like you you've just been busy, fun. like, injuring yourself. Oh, yeah. That's well, that, that, that's true. That's on the repair, yeah. I decided we yeah. went on a holiday for a week or so away to Wales um, in Saundersfoot and uh, Tenby Way. Really nice, really beautiful. I know you recommended it to me. When I said about it, okay. you were just like, oh, absolutely great, good choice and all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was with Amy's friend, my, my girlfriend's family and stuff, and it was awesome. And people say I'm accident prone. Now, I don't believe <laughs> them, but there is a, you know, a growing, like, kind of evidence to support this claim. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so obviously a couple of years ago, I face planted it on New Year's, which was always a great thing. Um, and then at the end, of, I was doing great on this holiday, you know, it was a walking holiday, dog holiday. So, you know, we, we go on long walks, we, you know, we walk around and there's beautiful beaches and it was so such, such good weather for Wales, you know, completely crazy. Um, and yeah, so the last day I'm walking on this little rock pool that I've done like probably the whole, probably three or four times before. And uh, I just roll my ankle. I, I, I come oh, down man. funny on it. And you know when you get that feeling, it, 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 you roll it, and I've rolled my handle quite a few times playing basketball, I, and they typically yeah. blow up like crazy when they swell. Um, and I rolled it, and I just heard the the noise, the you know, and I'm like, oh crap, I hope I haven't broken it. Um, well, firstly, actually, I was thinking, crap, I hope I haven't sprained it because sprains actually take longer than breaks, which is one of the craziest really? things. Yeah, it's really crazy. Sometimes it's better. I mean, you know, obviously me being a sportsman and all that, you know, with my rock pool climbing, uh, you know, I want to carry on doing that. So, yeah, if I, I was thinking, <laughs> oh, I hope that it's just a break because it's quicker to heal than a sprain. Um, but, yeah, so obviously that happens and I'm like, ouch. Um, that hurts quite a bit and um i did everything wrong uh so obviously it was the last day so we're coming back so it's a four-hour journey back from wales uh back to kent and i've got it all the way down no ice or anything like that so it's obviously blown up quite a bit and amy's like i think we should go to a and e um so we went to a and e um had an x-ray and stuff and i'd like you know sprained it bad really quite brad's brain actually uh probably one of the worst i've had um and yeah i'd also like uh chipped off a bit of bone and stuff so i was in a lovely cast not cast but like kind of a boot thing for a week last week but obviously working from home it doesn't really affect it it's quite nice that i was still you know essentially i could do the job perfectly because i could just have it my foot up for the whole week um but yeah so fortunately it was the end of the holiday unfortunately it had to happen but yeah now this kind of idea that ed is accident prone has become a thing um so I'm, (laughs) i'm kind of scared of that you know i don't like this idea of being accident prone but it does seem to be happening Oh, I was just say rolling your ankle is is really horrible. Oh, like, it's just like, the sick feeling. It's like everyone's saying, yeah. "Are you okay?" And I'm like, "I'll be okay once this sick feeling goes." But it's at the moment I just want to be on my own. It's like ow, yeah. ow, ow. I think it's the shock as well. I think it's where your body goes yeah. into a state of shock, doesn't it? And it's like, what yes. is going on? What have you done? And it's essentially saying, "Look, you sit down and do nothing for a while. I'm gonna make you feel sick, so yeah. we can see what's you know kind of damages." But it's all fine now. Well, I say it's all fine now. It's slowly progressing, but you know, the more I yeah. ice it, did the rice thing as you say. You know, the rest. Yeah. Was it rest ice? 
nice compression and elevation elevation yeah, yeah did all that it. and now i've got some lovely exercises from the physio to do but i should be all on the mend uh, and yeah. i can't blame alcohol this time that's the annoying thing you know obviously with the face plant it was all alcohol's fault now it's just <laughs> genuinely ed's fault all you all ed, all, yeah. all ed a solid ed experience but uh within <laughs> that time though um i've been able to kind of well really like lunch times now i used to be able to go out and you know walks and things um at the moment last week i wasn't able to do that so i kind of mixed it up between carrying on reading a book that i was reading throughout holiday time uh to do with closure uh closure applied i've got a i'll put in the show notes it was a really interesting podcast um it's about closure and it's a closure applied is a book uh from prag prog pragmatic programmers and it kind of discusses using closure in the real world um, because all these languages are great and you can get really good contrived examples and you're like, oh, this is beautiful. But actually getting a, a, a programming language I found and actually using it in real life. I mean, this is where you always come back down to PHP or something like that because you've you've had experience on it. It's like, oh, yeah, it's great. I've got this you know knowledge of another language, but I've got my tried and true. I know exactly what's going on in PHP and it's got all the, you know, the infrastructure around it. So this book kind of goes into a bit of a dive about what, clo- you know, not really about closure. You should actually have a good knowledge of closure as it stands, but it goes into more kind of advanced topics within closure, um, talks about like reducers and things like that and uh, transducers, sorry. And um, yeah, so it goes into that and then it discusses things such as, you know, how you're going to build a domain out of it using their data types and stuff. And, and it's really interesting. So I'm about three quarters of the way through that and that's been a really interesting read uh but i've been also juggling that with obviously i've been I, I, well obviously the this is as the podcast is I've, you, I've been releasing a couple of uh, podcast episodes so yeah um i've been out to i spoke uh, to jonathan clean uh, he uh, messaged us uh, a while back and was able to release an application performance episode which was really interesting um and i've also then spoken to uh, i say in this like you know obviously no one knows about this yet obviously you will know about this because they've already been released by the time this comes <laughs> out uh, and then also i spoke to uh uh, Joe Watkins about PHP 7.1 and all that interesting stuff um, but yeah I mean that kind of has been my kind of away from you know the world of you know kind of work programming how about yeah. you you've been doing much outside of work programming well I guess the, the only other thing I, I say we've been working on I really is um, as often my masters is still sort of like hanging over my my head and um like a dark cloud <laughs> yeah do you know it's really strange because you've only I got, the I mean, first... what, what have you got you've only got one uh, you've got the, you've got yeah. the final year project to do haven't you you've done everything That's else it. yeah yeah i honestly thought the first two years would be the hardest which they they sort of were don't get me wrong but but with those because i kind of like was told this is what you must do you must solve the this problem it, kind of having those shackles was it actually helped you get work done. Whereas now it's like, because I got to choose my final project and because I've obsessed over certain things. Um, I, yeah, I've not done as much as I really hoped. And obviously this whole, um, transition to freelance, I, I need to really, really, yeah. And actually I'm going to speak to probably one of my big clients at the end of this project. To say, look, I actually want a day, a week to, to learn. Yeah. Um, because I think, well, well, you're freelance. You, know, you have this, you know, you have range yeah. over what you do, and, and and obviously you know and feel that that will benefit you, and I think quite rightly so. Yeah, and I think what it will do is, you know, like all these companies say, oh, we can't afford to give you know people time to uh, to learn. Well, I think, well, if I could do it, then there's no mm. organisation who can't. Do you know what I mean? There's no excuses. So it's interesting. Uh, yeah. It's interesting you say about like kind of constraints and stuff because that's very much what yeah. designers 
um you know an artist feel is it's very yeah. hard just to have no constraints have free rain, rain over everything and i think that's the same with something like what you're dealing with where you know you've got unlimited amount of you know kind of ideas yeah. of what you want to do there's no oh you have to do it within these con- you know confined constraints i mean all these courseworks and stuff provide you with constraints that you then have to use and you can explore and kind of investigate so maybe the you know and i know that this works quite well for designers is actually to employ kind of some fake constraints like self yeah. you know constraints on you where like okay well it has to be within this domain this idea and i have to use this language and i have to use these concepts and things and, and i know you've been messing around with the idea of like you know obviously you're going to use php and then you want to maybe think about maybe you know kind of using a c extension under the hood that's you know someone else has written and just yeah. providing plumbing between those and stuff and and maybe that's a great idea you know saying that these are the constraints that i have to work in as opposed to yeah. saying oh no actually screw this i'm not going to use php now i'm going to go to a whole different stack and use that and and i think that's the hard thing as you say is that having constraints does help design and and i do feel that in all a lot of mediums actually it benefits to have these constraints yeah that's right i haven't really thought that through until we started speaking about it but you're absolutely right it's strange isn't it that uh taking taking away the shackles has actually kind of uh, slowed me down more than anything else yeah oh, i mean it, it's completely bipolar isn't it of what you feel yeah. going to be because you feel okay you know i'm going to be able to get on with loads of stuff because it'll be everything that i want to do and you're like actually crap there's yeah. so much i want to do or there's so little i mean probably in your case there's definitely so much you would like to do and yeah. then you but you don't have the focus to be able to you know constrain on certain ideas and certain technologies and stuff so no i i can feel for you i definitely understand where you're coming from yeah yeah but uh yeah no, other than that uh not not as much as i want to see you know i've been reading the sam newman book but um yes I, hoping to get so, him on soon well, well i say I've soon done. i mean we're hoping you know maybe we can actually you know discuss with him because i know you've really enjoyed reading his book yeah, I think the book's really, really good. And uh, I know you say you think he's got his own podcast, right? So he, he's probably a busy man. But if we could get him on, that'd be really interesting because I, um, I really do like the, some of the concepts he talks about. And he, he's obviously got a lot of experience and he's worked on some very big projects as well, which is, yeah, very interesting. I think he uh, works with Martin Fowler as well. I think they both work for the company. Yeah, so, you know, obviously they, oh, wow. yeah, they've got a lot of decent uh, knowledge behind them at that company. Yeah, that's not a bad guy to be working with, is it, really? Not <laughs> at all. <laughs> so uh but yeah you um you got a few things i have to... actually yeah um so actually first things first actually with uh, work related stuff I, i'm gonna like do another plug for screen hero um yeah i use it on a pretty much day-to-day basis and ever yeah. since um slack kind of bought them out i was i've been constantly worried thinking look i just want screen hero i will happily pay for screen hero on its own i don't want the whole slack yeah. stuff um but they, yeah. they seem to have just left it to work and it just there's not been no really up no updates no dot releases and it just seems to kind of work still and it's still the best available pair programming so essentially it's like remote desktop but it's very much you know you know uh catered towards the design the developer sorry so you know being able to pair program remotely and things like that and and this week has been another case where i've been able to pair program on a a little feature that we're working on and just the value of it is just immense you know being able to do this i mean it is it is better than being in person because you both get you know to be able to focus on your own screen with a keyboard in front of you and you're not kind of chopping and trading you know drivers based on moving the keyboard and and you're able then to still do the dialogue and everything as long as you've got a good connection you're fine and it's very very good at dealing with that i mean typically you know you you know the things of like skype desktop remote desktops yeah. and all these kind of things and rdp you know you get this lag and all that and it, it does have that horrible feeling but with screen yeah. hero it doesn't and it's awesome um and mm. i think it uses web rtc under the hood and stuff like that which is kind of its secret source which is awesome right um but anyway yeah so moving on from screen hero to something completely different um is our friend yeah. postgres uh you love postgres well i love postgres 
you are learning to love Postgres uh, slowly but surely. Um, you know, I know that a couple of mm. episodes back, actually, you kind of spoke a little bit about Postgres and not, you know, kind of mentioning like kind of how you felt that Postgres was uh, maybe a little harder to set up and kind of manage the MySQL. And um, yeah, and, and it was interesting because like I, 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 when I first heard that, I was like, I don't know. And I, I thought, actually, yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, vacuuming and things like that can seem a little bit harder. You know, you're like, oh, but you don't have to deal with that in MySQL. And I'm thinking, well, why is that? Mm. You know, well, why exactly is that? And and uh, doing the talk with uh, on Full Stack Radio with Adam Watham, you know, about kind of MySQL and the MyIsoms and things like that. And actually then yeah. also moving on to the application performance stuff where I talked about forks of MySQL um, and performance things and stuff using InnoDB and, and all that. Um, you know, I was kind of thinking, well, why is this then? You know, what, what is the thing? And, and it all revolves around the idea of looking after your data. So looking after your data is the most important thing a database should do. I should yeah. expect it to when I store it and I, it should look after it and it shouldn't be corrupted. In the days of my ISOM, you would get really good speed boosts and you'd get really good performance, but you wouldn't get the reliability that it will actually stay that way and it could just yeah. corrupt your data at any moment. Uh, so that was a price you're paying. So everyone should be using InnoDB now and things like that. Um, but along with that comes a couple of caveats. Um, so, so yeah, so with a multi-version concurrency control, uh, MVCC, that is pretty much the underlying technology behind both InnoDB and, my, and, sorry, and the Postgres database store. Uh, that's it that allows you to at different times you know i'm able to update and read so read and write at the same time and there'll be no conflicts so in the my ISOM days typically what would happen is if i was doing a write to a table it would lock the whole table so no one else could read it until i've done and that used a locking mechanism but obviously in the, in today's age you know we do a lot of reads and we do do not as many writes but you shouldn't when i'm writing i shouldn't be expected it to you know the read to to lock i mean it can show on big performance you know big performance hits if you're doing those type of things you may not feel yeah. that but actually if you start looking at your you know characteristics of how you use your application you'll be like oh crap it is actually really bad um so the idea of multi-version concurrency control is and it comes actually closure use this within their database uh, within their sorry within their management of concurrency um it's a really interesting topic there but you know so essentially what it does is you can think of it as what you do is you never delete anything and you always append. So it's an append-only list, essentially. Or append-only... Yeah, append-only list, you can kind of think of it as. And it's continuous blocks. So what will happen is, say, I've inserted a couple of records. And each one of those records actually has a transaction ID. Or, or yeah, it has a, has a read time, sorry, timestamp of... Or a write timestamp of when it was last... When it was written. And maybe a transaction ID of what transaction may... Well, typically, let's think about it actually yeah, as a transaction ID. So, you know, maybe I insert and it's transaction ID 1. So I've inserted a user... Now, yeah. if I go into transaction two, I'm able to read that user. Uh, so, you know, I get a new transaction up because every every statement, whether it's in a block or on its own, can be considered as a single transaction. So I select and I go, oh, give me that. Give me the users. Okay, brilliant. I've got that user. Okay. Well, what happens now if I say have, and so I, I then have another one. So I have two going on. So I, I create two simultaneous transactions, four and five. Four comes along and says, actually, I would like to insert something. And then five comes along and I says, I want to read something. They're both happening at the same time. Now, if you didn't have MVCC and you didn't have locking, you could have this intermittent state where it knows a little bit about the fact that there's another insert, a user inserted, and it doesn't, and it's, it's awful. So what happens is it essentially does an isolation. So you currently have transactions from five, but the five will select and it will go, actually, okay, what I need to do is I'm only going to look at everything from three. That's the most recent one that's completed so being committed so it's going to get that you know the initial only with one user in i insert yeah. 
it then inserts it it bumps up the id of that current version updating is quite similar where what updating does is say if i update a record and say i'm still selecting a record if i update the record if i select the record first it's going to get the transaction id you know of the currently most up-to-date one for that record um if i do an update it then will not not remove and replace that version instead it will add a new version and say that the most recent one obviously is that one so you can't i think i've explained that um what i'm hoping to do is get um bruce on who's um did the screencast that i've been raving about and i know you you actually mentioned you know a couple of weeks ago where you know he's been talking about postgres and how this all works internally but essentially what it is is it's allowing you to it allows you to completely you know keep updating the database right to the database whilst also reading from the database and this is where you get the whole idea of i may have the count so uh, in nodb and um, in postgres you have this idea of there's a round account or you know a certain amount of rows and that's because you, you've started a transaction and i don't know after that transaction if you're going to quickly do an insert so i don't know exactly ah. what's happening so that's how you know i've got a transaction that open i've got this transaction id i'm now looking at that snapshot in time so, it's, so that's why it's always an estimate and that's not it, a... That's it, because uh, it can't guarantee, uh, because it doesn't know after the fact if there's a transaction immediately after it that's going to be in certain... Like, oh, sorry, who, who have just happened maybe before it, but hasn't yet com- committed. So it It sounds to- um, uh, quite similar going back, but uh, when I did my Java, uh, the, the concurrence in parallelism module, like, it's very similar like, with the way that arrays, like concurrent arrays worked, where like you never kind of deleted an item from an array or it you would like tag like uh, one of the items as maybe deleted or something but it would never actually go that's, yep that's uh, exactly it so that yeah. is i so th- this is where you get into the situation so i've now mm. constantly appending to this list and it's great because i can always you know just you know i mean like got consistency enough because you know it's like i'm able to read i mean there's there's the cases of like isolation you know like so, or say conflict where maybe i'm trying to write something that has already got something written before so say if i'm doing two writes on the same yeah. thing now what yeah. will happen is is that first write and the second write are happening it realizes uh-oh there's there's you know ways of working out with the timestamp uh-oh you're both trying to write to the same thing we need to think let me commit the first one first, so update to that first, and then run the second one again. So it has to, you know, kind of work through. And and it's interesting, actually, because there's a couple of analogies that the work Wikipedia article use, and it's like thinking of it, of you know, if you're standing in line at a store and you cannot you cannot complete your checkout until those in front of you have completed theirs. So you can't mm. complete yours unless these ones have been completed. Um, you know, and if you try to cut in to check out yeah. early, you go back to the, you know, you go back to the back of the line. So this is essentially that thing where, you know, things before I have to commit before I run my own thing, because I need to know yeah. I've got the most up to date version. You know, I can't just because what will happen is, you know, it's the whole thing of I insert, you insert, and we both we've got this, you know, unexpected outcome. Um, but yeah. yeah, like you said, sorry, you know, you've, you've tagged them as deleted. So yeah. What do you have? I mean, you've got this append only thing, continuous blocks. You're constantly, anytime you insert, you're adding. Anytime you're updating, you're adding. And you're just tagging, you know, essentially you've got like the, the most recent tags, you know, that you care about saying these are fine. And you're just saying, no, these, these are old now. This is where vacuum comes in because yeah. you can't, you know, you don't have an infinite data store space. So vacuum comes along and what it does uh, is it cleans out all the others. That's the cleanup operation. That's exactly it. So it has to clean up the old ones because, you know, it it, it does need up to a case, you know, maybe within the time frame of having all these transactions that you have open at that time, it needs to maintain all those versions. But anything before that, it doesn't care about. 
It doesn't really care about that at all. So it has to run this vacuum, which then goes about and then obviously, you know, cleans it up, defragments essentially, or, or yeah, you know, or, or fragment, you know, defragments, sorry, each yeah. of the records to be in line and things like that. So that's why you have to do the vacuum process within the MVCC model in Postgres. But you know what my next question is going to be, right? Absolutely. Why do you not have to do it in MySQL? Uh, well, yeah, that. But also I was going to say, why is it not an automated process in Postgres? Because when I was looking at this and I was looking at Stack Overflow, people were like, yeah, you can write your own script just to automate it every 500 writes or something. I was like, that's crazy. Like, I don't want to do that. So, um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, is um, there is a demon. There is a, there's a vacuum demon that does run. Right. And... Um, the trouble is it's quite performant like on, on certain tables particularly hot tables which get a lot of updates and inserts you're gonna you know if you if you leave it for a long time you're gonna have yeah. a lot of cleanup to do uh this yeah. is where you kind of treat like you know t- tables as cues and things like that and and kind of I've been reading up and like the recommended thing there is to really as you say like every so many writes you do just quickly run vacuum and and you don't let it get to a stage where it's completely you know un- unusable so maybe like every every 30 seconds you're running vacuum just because yeah. you know that you're going to get this this hit um so yeah there is a demon already set up but you should and okay. and you do have to bear in mind that yeah doing a vacuum can be costly if you've got a very big data set because you know you right. have to update the indexes and you're doing all this stuff again the reason that it's not kind of like automated out of the box in is that they they're literally leaving that to you to say look we'll let you decide how well, often I think you want actually, to do it. It, so it is actually it is Auto- it just have it there. It yeah. just, ha- I mean, it is automated, but it's not probably the settings you want, or right. you know, gotcha. you have to kind yeah. of think about it. And you know, obviously, when you're doing your, um, you know, indexing and stuff, you may do a vacuum analyze and things like these and all that. You know, to be able to yeah. set it up properly and stuff. But that's the reason why you have to do a vacuum is that you know you get this amazing VCC, you get this idea of being able to read write at the same time, but it doesn't come without a cost in that you know you have to vacuum up old stuff, yeah. Um, yeah. and you know you have to bear that in mind. So. Obviously, then the, the the question I had was, why did we never have to do this in MySQL? And this is where, where you came into my head, where you're saying, oh, but you have to do vacuuming <laughs> and stuff, you know, like, you know, all this kind of stuff. You have to do vacuuming and all this rubbish, you know, in Postgres. Why can't you, why do you have to not do it in MySQL? And it turns out, so it does do MVCC, but I was looking through it, and I'll put it in the stack over, uh, sorry, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's a stack uh, article exactly on this topic. And essentially, it's the way that it does it. So I'm not going to go into too much detail because I don't really understand it, and I'll just be doing a you know, discredit for it. But essentially, what it's saying is that the short version is InnoDB uses rollback logs which are more like uh, Oracle's design. Only the most recent version of the of the row is kept on the main table. It must manage log purging and asynchronous delayed operations with a related function yeah, to Postgres. So it has a better way of dealing with it, so you don't have to do it as much, but you still eventually have to do mm. vacuuming. And that's when you do, I can't remember exactly what it is, but yeah, optimized table, which essentially does that. So I think it, it, help, it deals with it in more performant, or maybe, you know, I could be completely wrong. And this is where it's great, where I'm hoping Bruce can tell me this, you know, where maybe they're doing exactly the same thing uh, but what i get is that essentially that postgres has a different way you know and uses a different way to what uh, oracle and mysql use um and both have their benefits um and then both have their cons obviously because maybe you have to do vacuuming more on postgres it sounds really bad but back in the day i remember now seeing the optimize button in php my admin i used to click it now and again think oh, i wonder what that does and then you just you had no idea what it did but um yeah no i know well, this is the interesting thing isn't it i mean this is it's one of those things where it is you feel oh god this must be really hard to understand but it really makes yeah. sense it's like yeah, yeah i'm gonna have to keep versions of these around until these transactions are done i've got a yeah. couple of you know kind of logic uh logical conditions based you know to guard against the fact of having conflicts and i have yeah. to do a cleanup after the fact because 
you know you get nothing for free in in the world you know so yeah i mean this is the beautiful thing so that that's that's my kind of discussion about yeah postgres and my sequel and why that and and as i say i was thinking completely of you when i thought you know why is you know db not having to do this but it does turn out it does have to do this but maybe just not at the same rate i'll tell you what uh sorry slight segue but um obviously i have listened to your episode with uh, adam waffham honest no, but I actually will get around to doing it. Sorry, but <laughs> it, uh, but a good podcast sometime would be uh, looking at indexing again, especially like indexing on multiple columns. Yep, because that's not something really I'd really considered until this project. But well, that's um, it, composite yeah. keys and things like that, and yeah, yeah, composite indexes and the benefits of them and stuff. And and actually, yes. again, this is where hopefully we get Bruce on. I emailed him. He said he's up for doing it sometime next month. Uh, a podcast, yeah. and he has great talks on indexing and how it, the query planner works. I do feel, and again, it's like with Git. Until you actually understand what Git's doing under the hood to a to a concept, yeah. you know, to to a to a degree, like you don't have to know each individual, you know, a const, you know, actually implementation to you. you just need to understand the high level problem it's solving and how it solves it. You can get then you get the insight, you know, like I understand and starting to understand more now how database relational databases work and, and you know how indexing works and why it picks certain things and then that makes you allowed to optimize queries better. So yeah, no, absolutely, we'll definitely try and uh, pick his brain about those things. Um, yeah, and, and and one thing actually, sorry, with work uh, related stuff, and this is where again there was another thing you discussed, where what is a winner Postgres, and one of them was data types to you, you know, and that was my yeah. thing as well when I was talking to Adam was like, well, data types, you know, it's it's a programmer's database, it's a dev database, we love it because of the types, um, yeah. and actually types is going to be a flow throughout this whole pod- the rest of the podcast, I think. But um, one thing I'm doing at the moment is I'm having to store, um, so we all idea of this concept of offers, um, and offers have an expires at, so the offer expires. And once you accepted the offer, the actual offer, you know, you've accepted expires at a certain date. So within a certain time. So, you know, you have an expired date, which is a date timestamp, which is fine. You know, awesome. It expires, you know, next month at a certain time. And then once, but, but, but the idea is that you once you accept it, you then have another thing, which is say 30 days after accepting, these will expire as well. So how would you store that? Now, in the beginning, I stored it as, I, you know, kind of my MySQL brain where I'm like, okay, I'll use it as an int. I'll have days. So I'll say like, you know, given credit is valid for days, you know, or something. So once it's given, it's valid for these days. And, you know, I'm having to specify, I, I, I you know, good naming convention there was I only had it as just given credit valid for. And I'm like, well, it's an integer. It gives me no confidence, you know, co-concept of how many days, like what it, what is it? Int- you know, could it be seconds, minutes, you know, whatever, you know, is it days, months? So, you know, I'd have to put days within the actual variable name or within the column name, sorry. So what I was brought on um, to was uh, the data type interval. So there's actually a interval data type within Postgres. And what this allows you to do is specify just an interval, which is I want 30 days and it stores 30 days as an interval. So I can explicitly say, here's an interval. I know looking at this table that this stores this, you know, given valid, uh, valid for is an interval. Oh, it could be anything. It doesn't have to be days. I mean, it's only because I'm restricting it to the fact that I want it to it, the interval to be days, but it could be anything. It could be seconds. It could be years. It doesn't really matter, but it's efficiently storing an interval, uh, which allows me then to easily be able to calculate within SQL if I want to, or just, you know, bring it out into post into PHP and do it that way. So again, it's another win where data types have so much value because you can easily see without having to, you know, kind of hack into the name of it, the fact that it's days and store it as an in. I was looking at my SQL kind of solutions to this and the only one that they really came up with is the fact that you can use time 
as a as an option but time is the restriction that you can only have it's like something like less than 838 hours so you know you could have the time difference between two things but you know th- this interval is is really clear it's it's an interval it, it can be a day it can be months it can be years it can be centuries but it's an interval as opposed to being a date time or just a bog standard in so uh just want to be the stupid guy here as always but um like because it sounds like what you're talking about now could be really useful to me in like the next couple of weeks because one of the things that i will be doing is having like a a, a member system where they sign up they get like one month's free trial and i want to say obviously after that one month start doing a load of stuff so could i use that interval date data type for that exact purpose and would that make my life easier than just saying you know i uh, created at you know minus i would say current date. i would say actually for you there created at is probably more valuable um okay i would say if you had the cut so the way that we've kind of worked it out is because we have this idea of storing offers so offers can vary in like kind of interval like kind of period so you know this offer is valid when you the given credit from this offer is valid for 30 days so we need to be able to store the fact of 30 days as as a concept as opposed to you know a date timestamp. you know because we don't we don't know when we're actually starting that you know yeah. that times that actually time from we have no gauge on that we don't know whether it's going to be when we you know because once that we say we've uh, sent the offer it may be a couple of days until they actually accept the offer so within the freight you know within the time frame of the until it expires we need to vary the fact of when actually they you know when they actually get their credit gets expired sorry so yeah in that case i still would use date timestamps and the, the time interval stuff within um and like kind of working out the stuff in postgres is great so you're gonna love yeah. it yeah yeah well, I, I mean, to be fair, like I know like PHP, like if you do um, with two date objects, two date time objects, and you do minus on the other, you get like an interval object returned, don't you? Which is, uh, is really it's cool. Date intervals, yeah. That was one thing I you know, investigating into this was obviously, you know, looking at the the concept of having an interval because it is very different to, you know, dates. You know, it's not a fixed time. It's just an interval within time that you can compute different times, you know, based on timestamps you have, single or more, you know, you can use this interval concept. So yeah, they, they, they say that there's a PHP date time interval, which is great. And then there's also now obviously in Postgres, there's been for a while, but you know what I just realized, and this is where I love about, you know, learning things is that you learn new things. You're like, oh, that works perfectly. And it's that ha-ha moment. This is a great yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very cool. Oh, I'm learning a lot, man. Carry that's on. good. <laughs> and uh, what else is there? So, I mean, Postgres-wise, that's kind of it. You know, that's been really what I've been up to uh, the past yeah. couple of, well, week or so with that. Um, the other one is based on types, actually. Um, yeah. And it's an interesting one because, so so um, Uncle Bob um, released a new blog post on the 1st of April, and it was uh, Type Wars. Oh, sorry, no, 1st of May, sorry, the 1st of the 5th. So it was about type wars. And it was a really interesting blog post because it was discussing kind of his experiences using types and throughout the years and his progression, you know, from assembly, which had no typing and things like that, to moving on to something like Fortran and C and and how we've kind of adapted with types and using types in programming languages. Um, And really kind of, I think the kind of, you know, his idea and his motive for it was to kind of say, you know, I feel, you know, who's going to win? Who who essentially is going to win? Within like the late, 2000s or well like sorry the late like you know 2000 to 2010 kind of like 2005 time with ruby and things like that dynamic programming languages seem to be winning you know with this idea you know of duck typing and you know you having a good test suite was enough people would feel you know having a good test suite is a great idea because you know it allows us then and feel confident and we didn't have to worry too much about types you know we, we kind of emphasize more business logic within you know and, and testing in general within a tdd uh, you know test suite 
as opposed to just, you know, kind of relying on a type system. Um, and he was discussing, you know, he was looking at Swift and how strict it was with the types and, and whether that, you know, I suppose whether that's a good thing or not. And, you know, who's going to win out, you know, is, is it, you know, it's always going to be the thing about, you know, the type enthusiasts, you know, dynamic versus static typing and things like that. Um, and I think it goes more into more than that because I was kind of reading up then again about static typing versus dynamic typing and, and all that kerfuffle because it can get confusing. Uh, you know, so, the, my my kind of idea so i think of a statically typed language so a statically typed language to me is something like c and java yeah. um, because c and java require you before you actually ever initialize a variable when you declare the variable you have to specify the type that you're going to give it and that variable will always be that type it's almost like you're making a container that you can never change you're saying okay anything that comes in it is going to be of this type um, or be yeah. you know capable of being this type essentially you know um, along with you know polymorphism and things like that so that's great okay awesome um, but then you get into the frame of like a dynamic language and so dynamic languages differ in that what they do essentially is you say instead it's like I can have any type you know like the variable is this container that changes through time and it's only the value itself knows what type it is uh, there's a really interesting type, you know, it's, it's considering dynamic typing, which is the value type. So that's the value of it is actually typed what you're putting in. So, oh, yeah, now, you know, my foo is has got a date in it. Oh, no, now my foo's got an internet, as opposed to the variable or reference type, which is, no, this variable has to have a date time in it. And then you've got static type in there. And it and it doesn't have anything to do with compile time. And that's where it confused me because I was thinking, oh, static type languages, the beauty of it is, you know, you do compile time stuff. And, and there are actually cases where that isn't the case, you know, where, you know, interpreted languages are statically typed. Um, but they don't have the characteristics of, you know, a compile time phase that, you know, that, you know, pre-compile time phase, which allows you to get those benefits. So, you know, you go from there to statically and then you go dynamic and dynamic, you know, has those value types and all that. And, you know, then you get into the weak and strong value typing and uh, sorry, weak, weak and strong typing systems. And in the case of these, this is an even more in-depth topic because so you've got the idea of dynamic and you've got the idea of static and, you know, whether you want the flex, you know, the kind of, I know that this variable is always going to have this, you know, type in it. I know, but as opposed to, I just care, you know, about being able to have a script, you know, kind of being able to just say, no, variables are, you know, the value itself is the most important thing. It knows its type. It can just be chucked into any any container, any variable. You get into weak and strong. And so essentially what a weak language is, is something like, so PHP is a dynamic weak language because it's a weak language in that if I give it a type, such as, say, a string with a number in it, and I give it an integer, and I ask them to add them together, it will coerce the string into um, a, an actual, you know, integer. And then it will do its actual thing, or it will try its best to work out from the type. So it's weakly typed in that it doesn't really care, like, what the types are. It isn't strict on the fact that I can only work with my own type and things like that. It'll be like, yeah, that's cool, fine, whatever. I'll, you know, change that type and coerce it and implicitly do those type of things. Strongly typed is, on the other hand, and that's like Java. Well, yeah, I suppose, no, actually, no, it's not really like Java. It's, it's, it's in languages where you can't actually change the type. So things like Python actually like this, where Python, you know, if I try and add a integer and a number of integer together, it would be like, well, no, this doesn't work because string can only work with adding, you know, other strings. It doesn't make any sense for it to be, you know, being able to add an, an integer to it. It's completely, you know, crazy talk. The, the interesting one is C, because C has pointers and you can essentially it's weak in that i can actually even though it's declaring a statically typed variable 
I can coerce, I can like within that and kind of coerce that, not make a copy of it, but essentially like say, actually, no, this isn't really that. And I'm able to change the variable, you know, what it actually means at, you know, kind of runtime, essentially. Or compile time, sorry for that. So yeah, I mean, this is interesting stuff, like talking about types and all that. And and I guess my kind of outline on this and looking at this more kind of today is I, I do see the value in a test suite, absolutely. But I also see the value in, in good typing as well. And I think the problem we have is that a lot of our languages we use today don't have great type systems, um, you know, where the type systems are really poor. And maybe kind of sometimes they're verbose and they're restrictive. You know, you think, oh, but in Java I have to do this. And it's like, well, that's just because it's not got, you know, inference, type inference and things like that. Uh, as opposed to, you know, things such as, you know, where, okay, I've got a test suite that covers this. But you'll find that some of the tests that you do in a test suite, and there was an interesting blog post I put in. Um, it was called type, it was from typeinference.com. And it was discussing how, okay, well, uh, you know, you have this idea of a of valid number, a probability between zero and one. Um, you know, so this is a type essentially, isn't it? Because you can think of probability as a type. It, you know, a valid type of probability is an in, is a boot. Well, you could think of it as either you know an integer of one to hundred, or you can think of it as a, just a zero, you know, to one a point, you know, to one uh, float. Um, so you can actually encode, say, in languages like Scala, that concept of that type. Now, in a test suite, what you'd have to do is you'd have to employ, you know, with a language that you, you wouldn't do this kind of typing in and you wouldn't have this advanced type system. You'd have to do all the type tests for yourself. You'd have to check to make sure it throws if, you know, these types of things and everything. But actually employing that domain, that, that logic into a type itself gives you the ability to be able to get all the benefits of, you know, using a type system. So... Yeah, I mean, that that's my rant, really. I mean, what, what's your kind of opinion on this? Because I thought, you know, you may have like kind of a, an insight yeah. into what you feel, like dynamic versus static and, and how you feel like a type system. I mean, your uses of type systems, you know, how have mm. they kind of helped you and or maybe hindered you? So really, I guess my first kind of experience, like, uh, really was when I started learning Java. And um, and so I guess my, my impulse to learn Java was I always felt like PHP wasn't a language that was really taken up seriously. So I wanted to learn Java. And instantly that strictness uh whilst i might have found it frustrating at first trying to learn i actually i loved it like really really loved it and i could really see the benefits of like you know the, the confidence you have in your code when another developer works on it that you know that they've got to got to do that or you're going to throw an exception or what have you really like that extra confidence that it gives you and even now like um in php like uh you know well, pretty much throughout, obviously, the, the code base in Laravel, you, you've got this request uh, type, which has, like, all your, your you know, uh, get requests, all your input filters, all that kind of stuff. I love that. that That's just bounced around, like, throughout everywhere. And, again, it gives you confidence that you know when that thing is passed into that method that you can call, uh, you know, a method of that request object or, or what have you. I really, really like that, to be honest with you. Um I know we have sort of disagreements about it, but for me, yeah, I guess it's the extra confidence that it gives you and the extra, the same sort of reason why I like interfaces because it kind of just enforces a set way of doing something. Whereas if you don't and you just allow anything, then, okay, it's nicer, it's a little bit easier, but it's, I, I don't want to use the word lazy, but uh, if you can see where I'm getting at, it's... No, okay, again, it, does... it makes it harder to reason about if the code gets sufficiently yeah. bigger. Yeah. And I think that's that's where type systems come in. But I do feel that we don't have... Like, I think discussing Java's type system probably isn't the 
best thing because it's not yeah. a great type system so the value you're getting from that type system is yeah. probably just pain um you know you're getting the <laughs> yeah. pains of not being having type inference and stuff like that which isn't mm-hmm. dynamic typing people assume you know like scala is able to well it is technically able to do dynamic typing because it has this, you know special characteristics for that but typically all it's doing is inferring that that's that type um yeah. you know of a type and still using a statically typed thing um but yeah i mean i'm i'm with you and i think for me what you do is you split it out where a type system is great for the implementation and it allows you to assert certain characteristics. And if you can encode certain logic into types and you can get into, I mean, I was started looking into this Iris things and like that languages and, and they have amazing and such rich type systems that make you feel like, yeah, this is absolutely awesome. And, and that's why you then get this bug for the type systems because of the fact that they've got such great type systems. But yeah. The trouble is people then think, oh, but I don't need to have tests for those. And in some cases, if you get pure referentially transparent tra- functions, it makes it very easy for you to kind of reason about these things with based on types and you've broken it up quite really well. But I still believe that you need a good test suite to do kind of describe the characteristics of what that business logic is so it may have the right type but it could be completely wrong characteristics of what it's meant to do um you know i've discussed that with um you know joe last episode which was the idea of you know i have the correct type as in like a stack a stack has characteristics about it that make it a stack where you know if you can encode in the types of those that's be awesome but you know what you need to do is essentially the stack can abide by an interface where if i pop i return an item maybe it's generic so it's you know you're able to initialize what the stack actually contains and this is of a certain item um but the characteristics of a stack require that essentially that list that stack should be one less than what it was before because you're popping you 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 know you have got less items now i think and you can in, in languages like haskell and in things like iris you can program these types in in, and encode that logic in a type which makes it very powerful because then as you say as we say like in compile time and uh, you know in these times you can assert that these characteristics have been maintained whereas what you have to do in some cases is then instead if you don't get that luxury is you have to encode all that logic and that behavior in test form um, but you know it's the double bookkeeping you know entry bookkeeping thing you know logic with testing where it's good to have it in these places you know you're doing it once in the code you're doing it once in the test um, you know to assert it and yeah I mean it's interesting like my my knowledge of other type systems is probably not it's pr- not great at all um, you know I've looked into Scala uh, you know contravariance covariance all this fun stuff with type theory and all that but I don't think I've got a good enough grasp to kind of give a definitive answer. But for me now, personally, I think a bit of both. And I do feel that a good test suite, you know, if you've got a great type system, that's not like Java, you know, exactly, you know, these things. And that allows you to do things like Scala does, where you're like able to be like, oh, it's a double between these values. I mean, that's another type. That's giving you so much power. That's saying it's a type between these values. You know, that's a probability. That's a brand new type for you to be able to use that you're not having to encode in domain logic uh, within the class and it's based on the type, you know, of it. So again, you know, yeah, I, I mean, for me personally now, I think you have to have you have to have a good test suite, a solid test suite. I didn't agree with his 100% test coverage um, kind of uh, discussion. Um, and like I, holy grail. Well, but... For some this, people. Is, this is what I don't understand with, with test coverage like that, because for me, testing is all about confidence. So if I'm getting the confidence that, you know, my my code is working with, say, 50% test coverage because I've got the correct paths that I'm going down and stuff. And, and I understand, like, you're, you know, you're going, you essentially you want to, every branch needs to be hit. So that's why you get, you know, 100% test coverage. You're getting everything hit. 
But for me, the tests are also, you know, really about the design. So really, it's whatever you've designed. I mean, that's what TDD is about, is that you have the idea of to test your, you know, you're designing based on the tests that you write. And, you know, the tests become higher level. So, you know, like the whole idea where, you know, you, you only, it's kind of looking at ports and adapters where you're only, you know, it's a black box. So you're going in, going to the world. It doesn't matter exactly trying to test the, the actual details nitty gritty because they can change and you're just checking what comes out at the end. Um, yeah. You know, that's my kind of belief in it all. So for me, I don't believe in that 100% test coverage is the absolute rule because I can see I've seen test suites that have 100% test coverage and their tests are awful and they're so brittle and their design so brittle that what happens is, is that, you know, you change one thing because it's 100% test coverage. You're essentially also documenting both. You're essentially writing it twice where I don't yeah. believe you should be writing the code twice. Like, you know, I'm having to write the fact that I'm writing it, then I'm having to write code that hits every single thing so it knows so much about that detail of that, you know, that, that class. Yeah. It makes it so, it makes you just, you have to tear away the test. Like the test for me should be, I should be able to rip out some of the implementation and the test fails, obviously, and I'm able to build it up, but maintain that, the fact that that test is still running. I should be able to not have to tweak that test that much. Whereas yeah. with this 100% test coverage, you kind of do end up doing that. So, but again, you know, for the audience, it'd be great, you know, to get your feedback and like what you feel about all this test stuff, because yeah, uh, testing and typing, you know, stuff, because there's been a lot of debate about it and it's, it's a really interesting topic. Yeah, definitely. Like you say, I feel like uh, I'm not confident enough to answer that question myself because I've not used enough languages, but the stuff you're talking about there with like the, you know, uh, like range, two doubles, or whatever sounds incredible. Um, it would be really cool to play with that, I guess. Just encoding that logic in types makes sense in certain aspects. And the fact that we don't have that in these languages, I mean, it's almost like you can go either route. You you have Java mm. and a lot of people went over and thought, well, screw this. I'll just go over to a dynamic language uh, that, you know, I don't care mm. about types anymore, really, because I can use my test suite. Or what people have done is they go, actually, I really care about types and I go into an even more harder language. So it's interesting. Mm. I feel these are very different paths to go down, but I still feel you get the benefits of both. Like you can have a good type system and then good test suite as well. There's not one or the other. So with these dynamic um, type languages, is there, is there a danger that you end up with too many types? Like, I mean, how would you? Well, no, I mean, like... so with a dynamically typed language, it, it's the flexibility of being able to just give it anything, you know, essentially like, yeah. you know, a variable can be declared and then you can add something to it. You can change what the value is of that. And you don't have the assertion and you can't ever be sure exactly what's, what's in that variable because it yeah. could be changed i mean within parameters and stuff obviously type hinting helps a lot with that because you know you're hinting the fact that this function requires this to happen and it will throw at runtime but you don't get obviously the the compile time statistic statistical things but again the static thing sorry but you know again i was under the assumption that if i said static language it was about based on compile time but actually it's not and there are languages out there that don't have the compile time but do have the staticness yeah. Um, again along with the weak and, and strong type so it's interesting really interesting type stuff and that's probably something i would like to more investigate but at the moment i'm all on the postgres train so there's <laughs> only certain yeah. things you can actually spend time on have you finished with like the the type stuff or you had some other things you're going to say i am fully finished finished dudes anything you well, want to speak about it's only like uh, I, I completely agree with the points you're making about um screen hero for i mean i don't use it often but uh whenever i do i'm always amazed by how good it is but uh you're talking about slack as well and one of the things i've been doing really which you'll probably cringe about and probably half our listeners will do but i've just found it really useful for me in, in this current project is uh i've been using laravel's exception handler class and i've just kind of hijacked all those exceptions and i'm just literally spitting them into a slack channel uh an error slack channel 
at the minute just all into the very same channel but it's just really quite nice having it on a separate sort of screen somewhere else coming in on a live feed and it also works really well with like when i was saying the other day like with the the api that i've got where i actually i'm hijacking the status code again and i'm returning 200 every time because i don't want anything breaking on the client's uh site when if anything goes wrong at my end so it's really quite nice that i can still do that and i can still get all my That's exceptions a really on a separate screen point actually what you mean because like in all in all aspects of kind of code like this you think no you should be returning a for you know an error but if it's something like this where you're going to be essentially trying to sell the fact of no put this on your site you as you say you don't want it breaking you always want it to be valid because you want to log it yourself but you don't want the client to have to worry about that yeah that's it so yeah i'd yeah, just be- I, 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 I am fully in favour of what you're doing. I think this, this summarises this podcast. It's the feedback loop. You've now got quicker yeah. feedback. I mean, that's essentially it, isn't yeah. it? Because you've got the yeah. instant feedback of, oh, someone's had an error. Oh, okay, I'll look into that. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, you go into this and what you may end up finding is it becomes unwieldy. And that's when you get like, you know, analytics and things like that, logging systems in place, which allow you to kind of aggregate this data and work out what the most important bugs are and things like that and how frequent these things are. But no, I mean, in the, in the REPL loop that you've got now with, you know, kind of, I suppose it's, you know, still in development phase, but you're getting people using it every so often getting a quick feedback loop like that is really important, really valuable. So no, completely agree yeah. with what you're doing. Yeah. It'd be interesting to know if anyone else has got like a similar um, setup or anything like that. I mean, I know we talked about uh, like the different sort of logging systems um, and the ones you use where you are and stuff, but a lot of those systems I found quite overkill. Um, so something like that for me is quite simplistic. Yeah, well, quite no, nice. absolutely. I mean, audience, yeah. <laughs> pipe up and let us know it'd be really interesting to see what you guys pipe up that sounds really really aggressive i don't mean that like that i mean just you know please you know let us know what, what you have you know to offer absolutely but uh yeah i'm afraid i'm a bit light on material this week but uh, not a problem at all i've been able to somehow yab on for i, I seem to have a knack for just talking rubbish oh uh, it's really interesting actually like i say um yeah i mean the postgres stuff is really cool and i've certainly learned a lot about the vacuuming but the indexing thing would definitely be a good um episode to do if, if you're up for that Absolutely, obviously sir. i'll let you do 100 percent of that and i'll just listen but uh yeah it would be, <laughs> be really interesting all right dude well no thanks again man it's been really cool talking you. to you and uh, i know you're very very busy just for me because you're normally not busy for anyone else um no i'm joking um you, you, that... <laughs> you need to finish by saying it's been a great episode it's, that's exactly, kind of your this is now. this is the note it's been a great episode a the best amazing episode oh, the best episode so in the history of episodes no point listening to any other podcast no point listening to I mean. anything just don't yeah. bother just literally bother. you could just not listen to anything ever again and whack it on repeat whack yeah. it on repeat absolutely uh yeah. and Anyway, yeah, audience, it's been a great episode. That's my tagline. And we will speak to you again next week. Goodbye. Yeah, thanks. Bye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at threedevsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe.